Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Welcome to episode 228, featuring our very first guest of the 2023 season. Our guest today is Andy Howard. Andy is an author, speaker, health coach, and podcast host. Uh, He is here today to discuss his debut novel, When Words Don't Come Easy. And the podcast is actually the same as that uh, that book, uh, titled after it. I, I got a chance to go back and listen to a few episodes, and a few of those episodes stood out to me, like episode 9, Burnout Can Be an Ally. Uh, which is something I dealt with uh, a lot last year, and particularly at the end of the year. You know, I mean, as you know, I I took you know basically two months off from the show just to kind of recover and and uh, get better. Um, and then episode sixteen, behind the muscle, where he talked to a uh, a, a guy about fitness and uh, making that time for it, and that's something that's special to me because, in spite of in spite of how busy I was and everything else, I uh, my my relief this past year was getting up early in the morning and working out. Uh, you know, I still still was up at 5 a.m. every morning, did my workouts, and then I'd sit down and try to write after that once I had my breakfast. You know, so those are some good episodes. Uh, he has he has almost two dozen up so far. So I invite you to. Get down in the show notes and check out everything about Andy and his show, and um, yeah, it's a great episode. We're gonna be we're gonna be discussing dealing with depression and self doubt, how Andy went from no interest in writing to writing a book, uh, the writing process and the value of a coach and mentor to finish it, along with his incredible journey from concept to completion of the book when words don't come easy. It's a fantastic interview, and I cannot wait to share that with you. It's coming up here in just a few moments, so uh, you can listen to this update about me, or you can uh, click ahead about you know five or six times on that 30-second bar and uh, get over to the interview with Andy. Meanwhile, uh, <laughs> one thing you will probably notice is my audio quality, my quality, you know, whenever I speak. Uh, apparently, I'm out of practice when you, when you take two months off to uh, just kind of get some, you know, get your head in the right place and whatever, uh, you forget to check some of the settings. And uh, <laughs> when I was doing the interview, uh, Andy said he could hear me great. I could hear him great. Everything sounded great. But in post, when I was going through there to do the editing, my audio was almost completely silent. So I had to boost it. Had to go through there and isolate my audio and boost it. And uh, it was quite the process. Much more involved than I was hoping it to be. Um, but uh, as you heard last week, if you listened to last week's short episode, and right now, I've got that fixed, so I will make sure to do a QT check before <laughs> future interviews come up. Fortunately, anything else that is coming up, I've already checked my settings and made sure that I'm back to uh, the old standards. Uh, but yeah, you'll you'll notice a little bit of a difference in my audio this time, and uh, but it, it doesn't take away from uh, from our conversation and uh, and everything that uh, Andy has to say because he's got some great stuff. Uh, thankfully, I have made some good progress again on uh, Bandit Two, and uh, you know I don't know how many of you listening are from the '80s like myself, the '70s and '80s. You know, because I I turned 51 during that break uh, while I was out, and so one of the shows I grew up with was called The Fall Guy with Lee Majors. Uh, he's a, a stuntman in Hollywood who's a bounty hunter on the side. Well, he has an iconic truck in that uh, in that show. And going back over my scenes in Bandit 2, I came across a scene near the end where I got to I got a chance to introduce that truck and add that vehicle to Bandit's um, garage. I guess would be the best way to put it. Uh, prior to this, in Book One. We're aware that, of course, Bandit drives a black Trans Am. That's why people call him the Bandit. Um, throughout the book, you also find out, or throughout book one, you also hear that he has a van that he self-painted 
a black with a red stripe like the A-Team. Something may happen to one of his vehicles in Bandit 2. And uh, so he's in need of another vehicle. And lo and behold, he finds one uh, similar to this iconic truck from the Fall Guys. So that was a lot of fun. I posted about that on social media, on my author pages. And uh, uh, particularly on Facebook, that got a huge reaction. Lots of people you know, talking about how much they enjoyed that. And uh, I'm, I'm, having a, I'm having a lot of fun going back through. Because I got the basic of the story done. Now I'm just going back through and I'm, I'm fleshing out some of the other stuff, uh, you know, filling in, hey, here's a good good space for a movie reference, here's a good place for this TV reference, you know, things from the 80s, uh, music that needs to get put in there. <laughs> I did go for the low-hanging fruit <clears throat> during that same scene where uh, Bandit's going to get this truck. Uh, inside the truck is a tape with the Footloose soundtrack. And uh, the song that gets queued up as he goes to rescue somebody in need of saving, uh, I Need a Hero, comes on. So <laughs> it's I'm having so much fun with this series, and uh, I can't wait to share it with you. Of course, as I always promise with you, uh, all my listeners, you guys are going to be the first to hear when the book is available before I post it on my own social media. So make sure you stay tuned for that. And, you know, I actually have a favor to ask. For all of you listening out there, because I know there's a lot of you that listen on a regular basis. I know that I've got fans all over the world, and it my, my heart goes out to you. Thank you so much. I'm really humbled that the show has done so well, but I want you to hold me accountable. I, what I want you to do is, if you're following the show on social media, or if you're following my author account on social media, you know, hit me up, push me along, tell me, hey, Jason, when is Bandit 2 coming out? You know, uh, when is Bandit 3 coming out? Because... My goals, I didn't set any New Year's Eve resolutions this year, but my goals are to stay steady, you know, to to just to write every day, to keep going, and to finish my stuff. And ideally, I want to finish Bandit 2 here as soon as possible, uh, get started on Bandit 3, because as you know from last year, I've already written almost half that book by accident. <laughs> long long story I'll explain that later in another episode and uh you know so I can I'd like to get Bandit 3 out this year and if uh, if I can manage it I'd like to go back and rewrite the uh prequel the the uh, Bandit's backstory which is the beginning of the Zolur uh invasion of Earth back in the fall of 89 uh, so this would be Bandit when he was like 10 11 years old him and his brother, how they found the hideout that, that uh, he's in, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I've already got that. It was originally going to be a part of Bandit 1. And then I realized it kind of took away from the rest of the story, so I pulled it. And uh, all I got to do is just go back through and revise it and put it together. And, you know, whenever if I can do that, I'll probably make that just a free book. That'll, that'll probably just be a free story. It's not going to be a long one. Um, you know, certainly less than 50,000 words. So it'd be a quick read. For anyone that's interested in Bandit's backstory. But all this to say that, yes, my plan is this year to have Bandit 2, Bandit 3, and if I can, if I can manage it, to get this Bandit backstory put out this year. And uh, we'll see if I get anything else written in the meanwhile. But I feel good. I'm in a better mental place this year than I was last year. And, um, you know, I have my I have my wife and my family to thank for that. And... Uh, yeah, it's going to be, I think this year is going to be a good year, and I, I look forward to uh, to all that. Anyway, I'm rambling. <laughs> I'm sure you probably have already fast-forwarded by now, so uh, let me thank Writer's Block Coffee for being an affiliate of the show. Uh, you can click the link in the show notes and head right over to the website, uh, which is our affiliate site for that and uh, select some of the coffee that they have to uh, to offer. They got three fantastic blends. Uh, all of them are amazing, but of course, you know me, my favorite is that whiskey barrel aged blend. It's so good, but I and I just love it's not so much that I don't know, the taste is good, but I love that aroma of that that whiskey barrel aged. It's it's so good. I just I can just sit there and sniff on my coffee all day. I wish I had a candle. Of, of that <laughs> uh, but it's great stuff uh, so if you go to my link in the show notes you'll save 10% uh, if you don't go there make sure you use coupon code sample chapter to get that uh, that t- same 
and uh, the show as an affiliate gets a little something to help out with, uh, offset some of the costs with the show. And uh, yeah, you'll uh, you'll have some coffee and and uh, we'll all be happy. I also want to thank my friends over at Pop Goes the Culture Network. They are they are home to about ten or twelve other fantastic shows, all of them pop culture related. So if you like movie news, if you like celebrity news, gossip, all that kind of stuff, comic books, uh, you know, and even books from me. Uh, all that kind of stuff is there at the uh, the website in the show notes. Uh, make sure you're following their flagship show, Pop Goes to Culture Podcast. Uh, that group, they are making the the convention rounds already. They were just at a big convention in Arkansas, and they have a full slate of uh, conventions that they're going to that they're going to be heading to throughout the year. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll be meeting up with them at one or two of them. So. Make sure you follow that link in the show notes so you can uh, find out more. All right. Uh, as always, don't forget to f- follow the Sample Chapter Podcast on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's very easy to find us, just the Sample Chapter Podcast. And you can follow us there. You can contact us through each of those, any of those methods. Uh, if you want to reach out to the show specifically, though, you have a author recommendation or you have a comment about the show, then you can email me at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, well, I'll uh, correspond with you as soon as I can. All right, well, without further ado, it's uh, time to get on over to our interview with Andy Howard and uh, his debut book, When Words Don't Come Easy. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. We are back, and this week we have a very special guest. Once again, we are talking to author, speaker, health coach, former youth minister, and marriage counselor. We are talking to Andy Howard. For over 20 years, Andy served in in ministry as a youth pastor and marriage ministry pastor. Uh, He found that not much changes in each role, just that some come with more wrinkles and less hair. He is an advocate for mental health awareness, as he has known the heaviness of depression himself. He is passionate about fighting against the awful attack of mental health issues that are running rampant across the human race. And he and his wife founded the health coaching business called Taking Back My Life, where they have helped thousands of people get healthy. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome to the show, Andy Howard. Hey, Andy. Hey, thank you so much, Jason. It's an honor to be here. And as I was saying earlier, thank you for for doing this and everything you do for authors. Uh, this is such a cool podcast, and I'm just happy to be on it. Oh, man, I'm I'm humbled and uh, thankful. I, I'm I, it's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that. But the honor is all mine. I'm so glad to have you back. Uh, you will actually be my my first guest of uh, 23. So I'm, I'm I think everybody's going to enjoy this as much as I am already. <laughs> Well, very cool. Well, happy New Year's to everybody. Yeah, yes, indeed. <laughs> well, so uh, you know, I, we talked a little bit there in your description, but uh, give us a little bit about your background and uh, like where, where, how did you get to where you are today? Wow, that that is quite a story. Which is <laughs> while we're here, uh, in, in fact, the the book "When Words Don't Come Easy" that I, I wrote is pretty much just our life story, but there's so much to it and and how I got here today is just God <laughs> just gonna give him because honestly and we'll probably dive into this a little more but 10 years ago uh, there was a time where uh, and that was the height of my depression where I didn't know if I was gonna make it through to the next day man just being real with you and so that's why uh that's why now I am so passionate about trying to help others and just trying to bring as much hope as I can to others. Cause I I'm not uh, naive enough to think that I'm the only one who's ever faced a, a trial or problems. We we all have them, right. They all come in different shapes and sizes, but uh, the short version is just by trusting God one day at a time. Cause, uh, cause around 10 years ago, it was really, really just scary and dark and, uh, even for me, and I came from a, as you just mentioned, from a ministry background. So, so many people think ministers have it all together, and and sometimes we do. We have to put a smile on our face and and keep, you know, keep trucking forward and keep going ahead. But uh, it doesn't mean that everything's perfect, and 
we don't have trials that we're facing. So the short version is one day at a time. Yeah. And that's very true. I mean, I've, it's like they say, you know, comedians have uh, that smile on their face. They love making everybody happy, but they can be the most depressed. And yes. I, I would say second, you know, close second to that would be those in, in ministry. Uh, and my wife was a chaplain assistant in the military. And then she and I both uh, served our local church prior to that. And it was an eye opener to see how many people that were serving struggled regularly with uh, with depression and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of personal issues and it's 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 really a a constant thing and for me it it's funny because it makes me feel like an outsider because i've never been somebody to deal with depression yeah I'm always happy go lucky things bounce right off of me and water off the duck's back and I, so i kind of stand back and scratch my head but fortunately my wife is very in tune with that and and she enlightens me a lot you know, kind of yeah once in a while bumps me on the head and like no that this that's not what <laughs> you know, they can't just turn around you know, like, oh, you're right you're right you're right okay thank god for our wives right <laughs> but uh you know i was the, the same way so prior to that so uh as my oldest daughter peyton was born and she's now 14 years old so i would say 14 years ago i was I would describe myself very much like you. I didn't have bad days. And so it, it came fast. And over that four-year period, I, I mean, things just kind of spiraled out of control. And it's like the more I tried to do it on my own or the more I tried to fix it or more I tried to just snap out of it, uh, the deeper I, I got into it. So, uh, but, you know, now I, I do feel like, everything happens for a reason. Right. So I, I feel that with all my heart. And so now this, which was one of my darkest hours, uh, has, has been created uh, a chance for me to help so many other people. And after 2020 and what we all lived through here, and it just, it seems like depression and anxiety, uh, is skyrocketed. So I do feel like now I was equipped to, to help more people than, than I ever would have been able to without a experience in it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. That's true. If you can, I think we're well served if we can take our life experiences and learn from them yeah. as opposed to, you know, avoiding them and, and not um, never looking back on them, so to speak. I mean, I think you've got to learn something from it so that you can put it behind you and, uh, and move forward. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think you're right on point with that. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's true. Uh, I have a, a mentor who helped me uh, actually helped me with the writing process, but uh, he always says all and so many times I just wanted him to understand and uh, I, I wanted him to say, "Oh, poor Andy, you know, give me a pat on the back." And, and so many times he would say, "Oh, Andy, this is going to be just this is going to be so beautiful. What you're experiencing is so beautiful." I'm like, I, "You don't understand. This is not beautiful. This is <laughs> this is heartache. This is trauma. This is all this stuff that I'm going through." But he would say, uh, "But you don't see all the people you're going to be able to relate to and help with this." And so he would always have a way of flipping whatever I was going through to say, "It's not happening to you. It's happening for you," and stuff like that. So it's just uh, you don't always want to hear that while you're going through it. But uh, looking back, I laugh at it, and it got to where before he before I'd even tell him, I'd, I'd say, "I know what you're gonna say," <laughs> but just for a second, just we well, just have some empathy for me. <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, somewhere along that point, you decided to start writing down some words, which became "When words don't come easy." so the uh, genesis behind this what what made you one day say i'm gonna make a book out of this well i when i so my daughter's 14 when she became four that was uh around the time i, I really wanted to start writing and so my twins are now five <laughs> so it, it was all happening we had twins born at you know around that same time or we found out we were having twins but i always knew once i was getting out of the the depression that I wanted to, to help people with it. But I, I would say, I'm going to write a book about this w one day. Right. And I've heard that said that there's, there's 99% of authors, uh, their stories die with them. They, they, they say, oh, we got a book we're going to write, but they never, 
I guess never take the time or, or never put in the structure or, or put in the work to get it done. Or maybe it's just too far fetched. It feels like a dream that they can't do or something. I don't know why, but for so many people, it doesn't get done. But what was happening, the same friend mentor, he said, we got to find you a purpose <laughs> because I was still having really good days. I felt like uh, the darkest parts of my depression were long gone uh, but there were still every once in a while these trials would happen or that I would feel a little bit of slippage and I, like I was just in a funk, as I would call it, not not feeling great, but not I wouldn't call it depression. <laughs> but anyway, so you said, how are we going to get out of this? Uh, we're going to find a purpose for you. And he said, we just got to find that. And I told him, man, I've known I've known I'm supposed to write this book for years. And he said, well, well, let's do that. And so. Uh, he's just got so much wisdom, but we set up structure. <laughs> I, I set up, I had the time. So, uh, and I just would always try to do it at the end of my day though. I, I would, you know, do all my other things that had to get done first. And uh, he said, let's rearrange this. Let's your, your freshest first thing in the morning. So let's set. And for me, it was four hours a day. And so I would encourage anyone who's wanting to write a book, even if you have 30 minutes a day, whatever it is, set that time and structure that every day from for me, it was eight to noon that I'm going to write, that I'm going to spend my time with God. That was my quality time. I'd pray with him, but I would write. And uh, some days there was stuff that, that never made the book. But what I found for me, it was very, uh, it was just therapeutic. It was uh, the journaling process. One, it helped me mentally with some of the struggles that that I was facing. So that was very good, but it gave me, it did, it gave me purpose. And then... <laughs> somewhere along the way I got confidence because I, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I've, I've never wrote a book. I've never done anything like that. I, I've wrote sermons before. I, I've spoke to people before, but I've never wrote a book. And as somewhere along the way, as, as my mentor and as my wife, both of them would read these things that they would be uh, just, I guess, moved to tears and, and the, just the confidence from doing it over and over. I, I got more excited about it and about more people who I could possibly help. And so that's what led to the book. I got to tell you, man, I mean, I, I spoken to hundreds of authors over the years and you sound like all of us. <laughs> Myself <laughs> included. It's, it's a process. It's a commitment. Yes. And yes. Yeah, there's that self doubt. Like I, nobody's going to read this. Who wants for sure all that. But yeah, I mean, you, you sound just like every author I've spoken to. We all have those same doubts, but but you followed through and you did it. And that's... Yeah, thank you so much. It, it, it's true. As, as for every excuse I had to write it, I could come up with five to 10 not to write it. And that's what held me back for uh, probably 10 years overall of saying I was going to write it for a decade. But looking back and seeing God's hand and all of it, now I mentioned 2020, uh, I do feel like now's the time i guess for it to be released uh with you know with so much depression and anxiety maybe it's just we're much more aware of it now than we were years ago or there wasn't a label on it maybe i don't know but it does seem like there's a there's definitely room for it now and and people are looking for help and uh i'm just i just pray that this book will uh, help those who might be struggling with uh with anxiety or depression any kind of stress uh any of it yeah Tell us a little bit about the book. What what is uh, what is it exactly, and, and what uh, who's it meant for? This book is, I would say, is meant for everybody. <laughs> so I, I don't want that to sound like a, a shameless plug here, but it, it is. Uh, it's wrote for anyone who's ever felt like an underdog, uh, anyone who's ever felt beat up. Uh, I mentioned depression. If you've ever faced trials, if you've ever lost some someone, uh, my wife and I. So the whole, it's kind of a funny story here, how this came about, but I, I didn't know what I was going to put in the book for 10 years, but for 10 years, I knew the title of the book was going to be uh, Beauty Beauty and the Broken is what initially what I thought was going to be the title. And uh, the same friend uh, who helped me, Dave, my mentor, uh, when I got to him and uh, we were done with the book and we're wrapping a bow and he had been sitting on this for, I don't know, it was probably... It's about a year process of, of writing and, and being committed to it. And then I, I told him, I, I'm done with the book. And he said, well, one thing, we got to talk about the title. And I was like, no, that's the one thing I've known this whole time was, you know, if nothing else, because there's, there's just, there's a, 
and that's another story there, but there's, that was so special to me. That's what I felt God whispered to me. There, there's beauty in the broken there, during my darkest time with that depression. So anyways, he told me that that's like a famous number one seller in the romance novels. I don't know if you're aware of that one, beauty in the broken, <laughs> but maybe I was going to reach a, a different, different genre, different audience. Who knows? But uh, he, he said, uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to go up against that right now with that title. And, and so I, the second title, which is When Words Don't Come Easy, is is a song that I wrote for my wife. So we will be married at 20 years in May. So, uh, yeah, I wrote that song 20 years ago for her for our wedding. And uh, and I didn't know the kind of foreshadowing back then what we would face in, in our 20 years of marriage. But uh, right away, her dad was diagnosed with uh, brain cancer and passed and uh, she lost her mom to a heart attack uh, two years after that because I forget what they call it, the, the grieving heart attack uh, from her husband. And she had lost her sister. Uh, gosh, by the time she was 25 years old, she lost her sister, her mom, and her dad. And so it, it, we just faced a lot of struggles. And then Peyton, who the story, you, you'll hear a whole lot about her, is my oldest daughter, uh, she was born with 10% brain function. And so she's got, she's diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Uh, they told us she'll never walk or talk. Uh, very limited vocabulary. If she does talk, uh, she can't use her hands. She can use her arms kind of to hug a pillow, but she can't, there's a whole lot of things that she can't do. But what she does do is looking back now is, uh, she brings so much joy to us and uh, in so many different ways than we never saw possible because I could only see what she was missing in my own eyes. I could only see all the things that she wasn't going to get to do. And after I, uh, after I got past that and realized what she does bring to us and all the hope and all the joy and, and just all the different families we've got to meet throughout the years that have kids just like Peyton, uh, it's just been it's been an honor uh, getting to do this journey with her. And so uh, anyways, that's, that's how the, the book came about. And it is for everybody though. We, we deal with man, everything, whether you've ever had, whether you ever lost somebody close to you, whether you've gone through depression, through something like Peyton's situation, uh, whether you needed to lose weight. We were so unhealthy at one point in our life. I was 345 pounds and now I'm, a hundred, 185 is what I got down to. Now I'm about 200 is where I'm sticking at. Uh, but in my wife, she lost 200 pounds. So we've been on every end of just beat up in, in the underdog is what I would say. And even financially, we were at one time in our life, we were just down, <laughs> had nothing, worked very hard just to make it. And, and God has been good to us. So this whole story is kind of the underdog story of just not quitting, not giving up. And I, I believe it's hope for everybody. Awesome. Awesome. What was the hardest part about uh, putting the book together? You think? I think just getting out of my own way. Uh, and I you kind of touched on that earlier uh, about all authors face that. And uh, there's so many people I've met since writing the book that keep coming up and saying things like, Oh man, I, I have a story I've, I've been wanting to share and I've always wanted to write. And is we all do, right. We all have so much we want to, but we all have reasons like you mentioned that we can't do it. Nobody will read that. Nobody cares about this. Or will it be a number one bestseller? Maybe not, you know? Right. Yeah. But it might help. Gosh, I don't know. It might help five people, it might help a hundred people. Maybe, maybe it only helps one other person. That's what I was thinking. If if there is somebody who is thinking about suicide, which is so real today, unfortunately, uh, wow, if that one person's life is saved, then hey, it was worth it, right? So I, I just had to get, get out of my own way and uh, not think about all the fears and all the reasons not to write the book, but uh, get out of the way and then just think about who I could help if, if I push through. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. That's one of my, that's, that's like my favorite thing to do when I go to a, a, a book signing somewhere is like my, my favorite thing to ask is, is, you know, somebody comes by instead of like, Oh, Hey, yeah, you like sci-fi or do you like thrillers or do you like this? Now I'll say, Hey, do you like to write? Wow. That, that like gets people right away. Because I'm, I'm not asking about the books. I'm not trying to sell them on the books. I'm not worried about that. It's like, 
yeah. do you like to write? You know, and then you get them talking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this book idea. You know, and I've tinkered with it for a few years. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, my first book took me eight years to write. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I get them talking about that and encouraging them. And, and and there's times where people will come up to me. And like you said, that's the first thing they say is like, yeah, I've got this book idea. <laughs> hey, maybe I can give you the ideas and you can write it. I'm like, I, I tell you what, how about you write it? And you can yeah. do me. I'll give you edits. I'll be happy to read it for you. You know, wow. I love encouraging people to do it. And one of the benefits of having you know my own show is like I tell them, like, hey, you write the book, get in touch with me and, and uh, you know, I'll get you on the show. And uh, that is so cool. You, you never know. It, it hasn't so far. I haven't had one yet. Yeah. But I've got a few people who are close. So I'm like, all right, keep going. Keep pushing. It's like, I'll keep the show going. And <laughs> I would say I I am the last person, and I'm just being extremely honest with you. I'm the last person, <laughs> one I didn't even know about your podcast before writing the book, but I'm the last person who would ever thought I would be on a podcast like this because I, I didn't think I would write a book. I really didn't. So you never know, right? You never. But but it is possible. That's the other thing I would say because, uh, and I'm not playing humble here i i just didn't know the first thing about how to write a book what do i even do don't worry about all the stuff you don't know uh, god somehow he provides all the right people i kept bumping into someone who knew oh well you're gonna write a book well have you done this or that have you reached out to this person have you and so all of it just kind of fell into place for how to the, the, the hard stuff i just knew i needed to write and uh and then the rest kind of takes care of itself and and I'm not going to say it's easy. It's it's really not. You do have to be dedicated and you have to carve out time for it. And, uh, but it is possible for anybody. I would say you can do it if, if you're uh, up for it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so you mentioned we were talking about podcasts uh, and you have a podcast of your own. Tell us about that. Yes, sir. It's uh, the when words don't come easy podcast, just like the book. So uh, I just really am I'm hoping to, I'm going to use hope a lot here. <laughs> I'm hoping to bring hope to people. So it's very much like the book uh, based off several areas, uh, whether it's finances, uh, whether it's our health, whether it's uh, marriages is another thing mentioned in the book, strengthening, strengthening your marriage, uh, whether it's just about depression or mental health. I try to have guests on that, that help in all these areas and just bring hope from their own life experiences and uh, how they can how they can help share with people and just share that, that, you know, that hope to help someone get through the day. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. And I can't wait to, I, I wanted to check it out before we did this, but surely by the time this episode comes out, I'll have, uh, I'll have listened to some episodes and I'll make sure to uh, talk about it in the pre-show. So I, I sound weird right now, but yeah, but we'll make sure to have links for, uh, for the podcast and the show notes as well. So that way everybody can go in there and uh, check it out. So what about uh, getting back to the book? Uh, do you, you know, what's next for you? Do you think you got another book in you? That's the thing everyone keeps asking. <laughs> and I'm going to say, I have no idea. I, originally, I'll be honest, I said, no. <laughs> it was so hard getting it to this point for me. Uh, I'll never say never what's happened is I, I'm getting to, to speak again. Uh, God's opened some doors for me to, to share this story and I, I'm getting to travel and do some conferences and I speak at some churches as well. And uh, what I found though, is now I'm getting new stories. <laughs> I'm meeting new people with new, and they say, you know, this is what happened for me or your, your book helped with this area. And I was facing this. And so I, I'm kind of feeling like there might, I don't have any idea what's next, just to be honest, but I feel like maybe I'm not going to say no now, like I used to the first, the first couple of weeks after the book came out. Cause at that time I was just so excited. The book was out and I thought, Oh, relief I'm done. And then everyone's like, well, where's the next book? I'm like, can't we just take a moment and celebrate this book, but it made it, it finally got done. But, uh, I'll never say never. I, I right now I am focusing on, uh, I'm just sharing uh, this story and uh, doing things like today, get to do podcasts and uh, getting to speak at places uh, and just hopefully uh, help people with whatever's next. But I will never say never. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. You never know. You may end up with a, with a, a win words series, you know, win words. 
Wow. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I won't lie. Uh, the second book is, uh, gosh, how do you put this? It's both easier and harder. It, and that's a weird way to put it, but it's it's true. I think you got to, kind of like that first book, you got to have the story that wants to be told. And yeah. I do know authors who can just stick to, like, oh, no, I got to write this one next. And so, and they do. They they power through it. I don't wow. know how they do it, but I need a little bit more motivation. I got to really be into the story. And, and yeah. I started, I think, three other stories after my first book before what became my second book finally stuck with me. And then it was just like, oh, my gosh, yeah, this is the one. And uh, I, I can relate to that just even through this book. I I feel like some of my best chapters, uh, and I know I'm <laughs> being biased, but my favorite chapters anyways, were the ones that were the hardest to come by yeah. towards the end. Like in the very beginning, I felt like I had, I guess, cause I told you it was like 10 years worth of writing inside my head. So some of it was just like spilling out. It's like, I've been waiting 10 years to write this. And then towards the end, I felt like I was becoming a better writer because I had been practicing longer. I've been trying longer, but at the same time, I didn't have as much to share. So it was more, it came harder. But it, when I look back at those chapters, I was really pleased with them. So I can relate to what you're saying, because now looking at number two, if that were to happen right now, I'd, I don't know what I would even say. <laughs> so it would be very, very hard and that. Uh, I had to stay in the structure and the plan of, of writing, but right now I just don't, I don't know. I don't see it right now. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. Where can, uh, where can people find and follow you so that uh, they can you know, maybe go see you and of course, read the book, listen to the show, all that. Where can they find and follow you? Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, Andy Howard.com would be the easiest way. That's my website uh, on social media. It's Andy B, like boy, Andy B. Howard, and that's on uh, Facebook and Instagram. And uh, andyhoward.com has all the latest of speaking engagements and where I'll be in case I'm ever in your area. I would love to meet you. And amazon.com has, has the book. It's also on Audible, but Amazon is probably the easiest way to order it. Or again, you could get all that stuff through andyhoward.com. But thank you so much for... Uh, for doing this today uh, it's my pleasure and of course everybody we're going to have links for all that i can tell you right now there's there's several other andy howards out there so and you can pull up the links and be going to the right it's place. a fairly common name <laughs> that's why i had to throw my middle initial in on the instagram i was like, ah or any of that stuff so. yeah yeah i've got I, i'm to have such a unique name so there's there's no mistaking me when you find me. But uh, <laughs> Andy, this has been a great pleasure. And uh, gosh, I could just sit here and chat with you all day. But uh, it's time for me to hand the floor over to you. And uh, everyone, we're going to check out this uh, sample from Andy Howard. And when words don't come easy. Chapter one, the other side of fear. You have a story. So do I. Every one of us was created with a powerful story to live and share. But for one reason or another, we choose to remain silent. That's the safe option. If we don't share it, we won't be criticized. No one will question your story. No one will laugh at you. No one will tell you what you should have done differently. By keeping quiet, we don't have to face our fears of other people's uncomfortable and usually unwelcome opinions. You know, the ones that hurt us and often make our pain, shame, and embarrassment even worse. Silent equals safe as a turtle in its shell. It protects us from rejection, one of our deepest fears. Biologically, this makes total sense. Did you know that scientists have discovered that our brain treats a broken heart just like a broken leg? Rejection is scary, so why ruffle feathers? Instead, we can keep our heads buried in the sand. All the while, we hope for a change in a thousand different ways, but do absolutely nothing to stir the waters around us. But let me ask you a hard question I have to answer myself every day. How can you move forward in life if you keep standing still? What if you change your perspective with me just for a second? And instead of focusing on the criticism and judgment you and I are both so afraid of, we imagine what's on the other side of fear. Would you dare go there with me? 
it's all about perception. When viewed from one side, it looks big and hairy and terrifying like a monster under the bed. But what if it's something more wonderful, beautiful, and brighter than you ever thought possible waiting on the other side of fear? Because remember, even though the monster under our beds or in our closets as kids was a figment of our imagination, so is the fear keeping us quiet. It's all bark, no bite. For whatever reason, it's been a while since you've tasted victory. So failing or feeling small has become second nature, and we anticipate negative outcomes. How do I know what this feels like? Because I lived there for most of my life. If you're looking for a way past being stuck or a cure for fear, this chapter is for you. And it's really for where my personal journey of radical transformation begins, by taking a peek through the keyhole of a very scary door called fear. Let me tell you what I found on the other side of fear. It's not about me or you. In John 10.10a, Jesus gave Satan's worst strategy. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Stealing, killing, destroying is scary stuff, right? Maybe if we just stay quiet, we won't draw any unwanted attention from the thief on a warpath against our souls. But I started to see things in a different light when someone told me, Andy, if you keep playing small, Satan doesn't even have to mess with you at all. You're paralyzed with fear and keeping yourself quiet. So why does he have to do anything to keep you quiet? You're doing a really good job of that on your own. That hurts, but it was true. It is true for you, too. Does that sound like freedom or look like the abundant life to the fullest Jesus promises in the rest of John 10.10? Not really. I took that lesson to heart. I embraced my freedom. I accepted the abundant life, and that's all you have to do, right? You just say, yeah, Jesus, I want that. Snap your fingers, and then magically you're never afraid again. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. On April 28, 2019, I was sitting in my man cave. Yes, I have a man cave. I'm a girl dad of three beautiful daughters and proud of it. I have a drop-dead gorgeous wife, and shoot, even my dog and cat are females. I'm surrounded. <laughs> Not to mention, we have five nurses who help care for our oldest daughter. They are basically family, and yes, are all females. So sometimes a man cave is essential to sanity. Anyways, I was sitting in my man cave watching my friend Pat Schatzlein preach an amazing sermon on Facebook Live. I remember the date because I kept the text thread where I told him thank you for three years as of writing this. I needed that message so badly. I was beaten up and broken down. If life was a race, I felt like I was in the last place. But I believe there's always hope for the underdog. As I shared my reality with him, he replied, Thanks so much for being authentic. It's time to awaken the anointing once again. I believe in you. He probably has no idea what that meant to me. So, Pat, if you're reading this, thank you. That message of hope was a lifeline tossed to a guy flailing in the middle of the ocean. It tugged me back into the boat and changed the trajectory of where I was headed. It exchanged my defeated outlook for one of victory. Around the same time, I had another life-altering conversation with a dear friend named J.M. I confided in him about being nervous for an upcoming talk I had to give. I was going on a missions trip with the aforementioned Pat to South Africa. In all honesty, I was terrified that I was about to screw this up and be a bad representation of his ministry. But instead of saying, wow, Andy, I understand. Your life is hard. That's a big responsibility. J.M. said this, bro. It's not about you. The message you're supposed to deliver isn't for you. It's for them. Once you really understand that, then the pressure is off. You can walk in the Lord's confidence because he is using you to set people free. Yep, that snapped me out of it. I was spiraling because my focus wasn't on the vision God was calling me to chase. It was on me because I had made everything about me. J.M. challenged me to do it scared, so I did. I went to South Africa. I gave the talk. It impacted people in a way I never could have done on my own. But guess what? Even after that experience, I'm imperfect. I'm still tempted to give in to fear. Writing this book has been tremendously difficult. My mind is amazing at crafting excuse after excuse of why I shouldn't share my story with you. However, I've tasted what's on the other side of fear and it's unbelievably good. 
Walking in God's favor is indefinitely better than playing it safe. Safe is dangerous when it comes to chasing God's best because you make your impact on the adventure, not on the couch. My story is my story, and I pray it blesses you and everyone else who hears it. Even if no one else gets a thing from it, I would still walk in obedience as God called me to share it. It's been a long journey, but a fun ride. Through it all, a phrase has been etched in my heart forever. There is beauty in the broken. So even if I find myself in a dark place texting my friend Pat, even when my knees were shaking with fear as I text JM, even though my fingers didn't want to write, I've learned that God makes broken, busted, and bruised things beautiful. And that's not just the story of my life. It's the story of everyone's life. You face hardships. You're up against scary things. You have a battle to fight. But no matter how hard, scary, or tough the road is, I promise there is beauty on the other side of fear. I'm writing this as I prepare to run my second Spartan race. I remember running my first one a year ago. I was nervous. I had seen all the YouTube videos of people tripping in the mud, falling over obstacles, and messing up the javelin toss. Did I train enough? Was I strong enough? Do I have the endurance? On that course, I couldn't help but see my life experience reflected in every obstacle. Climbing over walls and crawling beneath barbed wire perfectly illustrated what Tiffany, my wife, and I had gone through together. But as I ran and climbed and crawled, I looked up from the obstacles. I stopped focusing on the burn in my legs and the gash on my shin, and I looked around at the amazing, wonderful, beautiful friends God had blessed me with. I wasn't alone. I had signed up for this ahead of my 40th birthday because I wanted to do something hard that I had never done before. And voila, Spartan race it was. I didn't want to chicken out, so I invited a bunch of friends to join me for accountability, motivation, and of course, celebration when we were done. The Spartan is tough, man. They have designed it for one reason only, to get in your head and make you quit. While you need to train your body, it's more about strengthening your mind. As former Dallas Cowboys coach and Hall of Famer Jimmy Johnson said, let the mind control the body, not the body control the mind. That is toughness. Right off the starting line, you're plunged into freezing water with a pack of over 100 other people. It's a scrum of scrambling racers and ice-cold water that shocks your body. Every cell in my body yelled, Andy, why are you doing this? Get out. Your body wants to quit. Your mind says no. Keep going. Then you hit the mud and crawl. Like the water, it's frigid. Only it cakes onto you. Gets mushed in your mouth and seeps in between your toes. Once you stagger to your feet, 90% of the course stretches out in front of you, usually uphill. Every obstacle thereafter brings new challenges, and your body keeps begging you to quit already. You might be wondering, what does a Spartan race have to do with me? If you've been afraid to do something because you might not measure up, then it has everything to do with you. At one point in my life, I weighed 345 pounds, and since I'm not 8 foot tall, that was far too heavy. I was so overweight that I actually spent more time looking for a close parking spot at the grocery store or mall than I did shopping. Just walking into the store left me out of breath and with a light sweat covering my body. Ugh, I was so unhealthy. I was so sick. I was in pain. And that 345-pound guy was still somewhere inside of me. I was terrified to run the Spartan race with people half my age. But that was when the other side of fear mentality kicked in. How cool would it feel to finish a Spartan race at 40 years old? I imagine my wife's smile getting bigger and bigger with every mile and obstacle I conquered. The only thing that got me to the starting line was a vision for what could be if I just did it afraid. And I can tell you honestly, crossing the finish line was one of the most exhilarating feelings of my life. It wasn't just good, it was flipping amazing. It was better than I ever imagined. Crossing the finish line represented much more than finishing a hard race. It symbolized a shift in my mindset. Something changed inside of me. Covered in mud, sweat, and a little bit of blood, it was mine, don't worry. I found a new perspective, a new confidence. Each obstacle had been a test, and I passed. This was a big deal because there are many obstacles Tiff and I have faced in life that we weren't sure we could overcome. 
as they say in one of our favorite movies, we've been through a whole heap together. A whole heap. A big question mark hung over my head. That question was whether my future would be filled with toy trucks or dolls, building blocks or princess dresses, league baseball games or father-daughter dances. I was at my day job trying to get my work done and doing a terrible job of it. My wife and I had a doctor's appointment that day to discover the sex of our child. Frankly, I had no idea what to do with a daughter. I didn't know girls. I knew boys because I grew up with four older brothers. And I dreamed of things like teaching my son how to do Dirk Nowitzki's legendary one-legged fadeaway jump shot or Hakeem Olajuwon's dream shake. And then I daydreamed about more serious things like maybe having to teach him about cars and his wedding day. I'd almost imagined his whole life all while I was supposed to be working. But what if it was a girl? Would it be tea parties and Disney movies? I'd have to walk her down the aisle and give her away to a godly man. When she turned 40, of course, and not a minute sooner. We'd have tough talks and hugs, and, and yep, pretty soon I'd imagine what her life would be like, too. By the time three o'clock rolled around and it was time to leave for the appointment, I was pretty confident I'd figured out how to handle either outcome. Many people had no idea how much I was dwelling on the sex of my first child. It doesn't matter, as long as it's healthy. I'd tell people when they asked if I was excited to find out. That froze rolled off my tongue so easily that I wasn't even realizing what I was saying. Other people said it all the time, so it seemed an even killed thing to say, and I thought I avoided coming off as a nervous new dad. I met Tiffany at the doctor's office, and soon we had her answer. We were having a girl. I was thrilled. I was going to be thrilled no matter what, of course. But I was so excited. Who knows? Maybe she'd be interested in learning a jump shot. And suddenly, tea parties sounded amazing. Someone wanted a girl, the nurse said as we gathered our things in the reception area. He hasn't stopped smiling since y'all came out of the room. Yes, there was a goofy smile on my face. And when I got in my car and turned on the radio, that smile got even bigger. Stephen Curtis Chapman's song Cinderella was playing. And now I finally understood. A daddy and his princess. That was my future. I detoured on my way home, buying a copy of that CD so I could listen to it on the way to work, running errands, and on the way home. I pictured how wonderful it was going to be, a pink-hued sunset of perfection every day. But in the days before our daughter Peyton's birth, things didn't quite go right. There was some trauma leading up to and during the birth. We were new parents, so we really didn't grasp that something was wrong at first. We had nothing to compare it to. Peyton couldn't gain weight. She'd throw up nearly everything we'd feed her. She seemed listless. We tried what seemed like every formula and every recommendation on the planet, but with no success. I was working multiple jobs at the time, and the long night struggling with this was creating incredible amounts of stress. In the coming months, we wore a groove in the payment to and from the hospital as Peyton was given the label of failure to thrive when they couldn't find what was wrong with her. It felt like we lived our life either at the hospital or at the doctor's office as they ran test after test. Test her breathing, test her eyesight, test her blood for genetic disorders. They could find nothing, which was a relief, but watching my little princess get jabbed and prodded was so hard. Finally, our doctor set us up with an appointment with the chief neurologist at the Dallas Children's Medical Center. As a new parent, it didn't occur to me that that was a sign of something serious. People don't meet the top doctor at one of the biggest children's hospitals in the world if everything is fine. I was just thrilled we were getting such expert testing and consultation. So we went in hoping for the best and thinking we'd finally have our answer to how to fix the problem. Then the doctor came back into the room where we waited, carrying a box of tissues. There's no easy way to tell you this, he said. Your daughter has only 10% brain function. My heart seemed to stop as if the floor gave way and terror had gripped it. Barring a miracle, the doctor continued, she'll never be able to walk, she'll never be able to talk, and if she does, it will be with a very limited vocabulary of about 250 words or less. I wanted him to stop talking. His voice faded as I was overcome with a wave of grief and sadness that drowned out the horrible reality he was describing. She'll never be able to use her hands or grasp things like a pencil, but the doctor tried to inject hope in his voice. 
she may be able to use her arms to hug or hold a teddy bear. She was legally blind. She wouldn't see detail, though she could see shapes and colors. He went on and on the best he could, giving us a litany of bad news and crushing the dreams we had had for our little princess. He was sorry to have to tell us this, he said. He had made sure we had the tissues. He had to be on his way to the next patient. He tried to be kind, but how can you deliver that kind of news kindly? And then he was gone. And all we heard was his footsteps down the hallway and the screaming silence in the room as we both wept. It's strange how the world can keep turning for everyone else and can stop for you. It's in those moments you discover a truth about your relationship with Jesus. You never know it lurks in you, that sense that because of your hard work for the Lord, that you deserve something better, that you should miss out on deep hurt. I had no idea that was in my heart until then. And over time, my prayers turned from sincere hope for healing for my baby girl into complaints and questions rooted in bitterness. Why me? Why us? I was broken and felt betrayed by God. God, I work hard for you. I work extra jobs so that I can be a youth pastor. I make a difference in people's lives. I don't ask for much. Why would you let this happen to us? I began slipping into deep depression. Even though my wife was handling the challenge we faced with Peyton with incredible grace and strength, in a way that only made me feel worse. Me, the husband, the father, the pastor, stumbling and complaining and angry with God. What kind of dad feels this way? Didn't I love Peyton? Wasn't she a beautiful gift enough the way she was? Wasn't I supposed to be the strong one in the family? It's not fair, I thought over and over. It's not fair to me, to us, to Peyton. Peyton was being cheated. She was going to miss out on so much in life. Every parent wants the best for their child. And my girl wouldn't have the Cinderella tea parties. She might not be able to say my name. The weight of disappointment and depression and anger with God was crushing me. Something so heavy, it almost seemed as if it were tangible pain. It's something I've never experienced since. Now that I'm on the other side of things, I understand that God loves me and knows me better than I know myself, far more than I can comprehend. And because of that, I know He didn't abandon me. Even though the prayers coming from me during that time were awful, I'd be embarrassed to repeat them to you now. God knew we were hurting. He knew the future we'd imagine had just been shattered, and He could handle all the hard questions we were throwing at Him. In fact, God was at work the very day we got Peyton's diagnosis, in one of those examples of how you can't always see His hands at work until later, when you look back. We'd invited our friends over for dinner the night of the appointment with the specialist, long before we knew what that day would become. We considered canceling, because neither of us felt like being around anyone. But I had the sense that we should go ahead. At least it would be a distraction, a moment of normalcy, when everything was upside down. My friend Ricky and Andrea, his wife, have always brought a lot of fun and laughter into our lives. They helped us at the church, and we've been through a lot together. They came over, and while we were more subdued than usual, the meal went fine. When the meal was over, we told them what the doctor had told us about Peyton just a few hours earlier. Ricky immediately asked if he could pray for Peyton, and he began praying and crying over her for at least five minutes. I had no idea what he was saying to God. He was praying in Spanish, but I felt an almost tangible peace of God flow into the room and wrap around me. It's that peace that passes all understanding, the peace that has no business being present in the midst of the worst day of your life. But still, God put it there. On the most difficult day of our life, God sent us peace. But I still had a long way to go. Bittersweet. Depression is like a choke collar. You have a moment where you feel it loosen, and then it snaps back like a vengeance. It's as if you'll never be free from it, and the good moments make the difficult times all that much harder. My depression raged on, affecting my wife, my work, and my relationship with God. After talking to Ricky and Andrea about how I was struggling, we all decided to take a vacation to the Alabama seashore. A change of scenery and routine would help, we thought. 
But even a beautiful rented condo right on the beach couldn't put a dent in the downward spiral. Perfect location, best friends, and I felt miserable. It became the climax of my depression. Everywhere I looked, I saw parents with their kids. Dads playing with kids on the beach, kids burying their dads in the sand, dads throwing kids in the pool, dads and their kids building sandcastles. Hey, Andy, I could almost hear the enemy say, that'll never be you. Finally, after another sleepless night, I got up around 4.30 a.m. and crept out of the condo by myself. It was still dark at the edge of sunrise, where only the barest hint of light hit the horizon and the stars were sparkling above. The sound of the water rolling in and out was the background noise to my thoughts. As I walked on the beach, I spotted a couple in front of me doing something very curious. They'd walk a bit and then stop and bend down and pick something up. They'd look at it, pause, and then toss whatever it was back into the water. Once in a while, they kept what they picked up. I walked a bit faster to get closer until I could see what they were doing. The soft sand was covered with seashells, and they were busy picking them up. They only seemed to keep them if they were whole. And what was broken or imperfect, they tossed aside. Once I realized what was happening, I stopped. I let them walk far enough ahead down the beach. This moment is burned in my memory, so much that as I write this, I can feel chills down my back. Because in that very moment, I looked at the broken shells that the couple had discarded. I heard the Lord say, there's beauty in the broken. Everything crumbled. Every wall, every fortress of anger and bitterness, the pressure and the burdens all gave way. And everything I'd carried since that day in the doctor's office spewed out of me. I broke down and sobbed. Let me tell you, it was an ugly cry, and I didn't care. Through wrecking tears, I picked up every broken shell that the couple had tossed, placing them in front of my shirt that I'd pulled out to use as a basket. I must have collected a hundred broken shells that morning, but brokenness and beauty was everywhere, stretching far down the beach to where I couldn't see the end. Trudging back to the condo with my shirt full of seashells and my eyes red and watery, I knew something had changed. Tiffany and I had a good cry. She found a glass vase shaped like a shell that we put those broken shells in, something we have on display in our house to this day. Who but God could have used the coquina shells, the sereth shells, and sand dollars, remnants of once-living creatures broken long before we ever arrived, waiting on the sand for me to see, discarded and ignored by others to bring healing. If you visit the Alabama seashore, one of the shells you'll find on the beach is called the bittersweet. It's a common seashell, white and fan-shaped, with a corrugated surface, usually covered in reddish or brown line patterns. Originating from the saltwater clam family, the bittersweet shell colors can fade over time as the natural elements wear down the surface. What had been inside died first, and then, over time, in the wear of the waves and sand, the shell is smoothed down into soft white and peach colors, rough edges gone, and lovely as a pearl. There's beauty in the broken. That was the start of my journey out of depression. I say it was a journey because it didn't happen all at once. God has a way of leading us through, putting us in the right moments with the right people at the right time. What we think is a coincidence or unconnected is part of how he connects everything eventually into a much bigger picture than we could imagine. Nothing is wasted. Not a hurt, not a win, not a failure, not a success. All things work together. God can even use channel surfing. One evening, still working through my depression, I was flipping through the TV channels and stumbled upon an evangelist. I felt compelled to watch, and the man talked about his new book, Why Is God So Mad at Me? He had my attention, and I ordered that book. It ended up being a significant part of what helped me get victory over my battle with depression. Who was the evangelist? Pat Schatzline. Years after the night of channel surfing, when my wife and I had won a trip to Greece, which is a miracle in itself, we discovered the Schatzlines were also on that same trip. Imagine the incredible love of God, the way He weaves our story so perfectly even when we only see a knotted mess. 
I went from flipping through channels to reading a book to sharing a dinner table with a man whose words had helped me push through. You can be sure I told him what an impact it had. Ultimately, my wife and I became friends with the Schatzlines, the same wonderful people who later received my texts about the struggles I'm having and the admission that I was still broken and yet still invited me to share our story in South Africa. Don't you tell me God doesn't know your hurt. Don't you tell me he doesn't care. Don't you try to debate whether he orders our steps, because I know he does. When there's an obstacle in front of you, you have two options, quit or look for the beauty in the broken. God created wins for me, but they wouldn't have come if I had quit. Remember the first part of John 10.10, a verse I shared at the start of this chapter? We find out that Satan's sole goal is to kill and destroy. He leaves brokenness in his wake. But then there's the second part of the scripture, the good news that follows the bad. Jesus tells us that he has come to give life to the fullest. On the other side of fear and brokenness is life to the fullest. Beauty, amazing accomplishment, crazy dreams you could never have imagined coming true. I know this is true personally, but I assure you that I'm nothing special. If I can see this, if God can do this in me, he will do the same for you. His love for you is just as fierce. In the coming chapters, I'm going to paint you a real picture of hope, one I lived out brushstroke by brushstroke. It's everything I've learned along the way, but I can only point you to that hope. You hold the key to whatever box or cell you've locked yourself in. The ability to decide either quit or look for beauty in the broken. If you're tired of playing it safe, let's journey to the other side of fear. All right, everyone, that was Andy Howard reading a sample chapter from his debut book, When Words Don't Come Easy. Hey, that was a fantastic recording, by the way. Uh, they sent me that clip so that way you could have that in there. Save me some work. <laughs> which was great uh, make sure you follow the link in the show notes for everything Andy uh, his book, uh, everything he has to offer including his podcast uh, and then don't forget to also click the link in the show notes for our uh, podcast friends and uh, and the Writer's Block Coffee affiliate link but finally don't forget to click that subscribe button so you don't miss that next time when I'm back with a new author a new book and a brand new sample chapter Take care, everyone. It's good to be back, and I'm uh, going to talk to you again real, real soon.